I'm on Rue Albert Premiere in the beautiful city of La Rochelle, bang in the middle of the western coast of France. The city is the capital of the Charente Maritime Department and its strategic location on the Bay of Biscay and its deep waters have for many centuries afforded it the status of one of the most important ports in France. Just offshore, connected to the city by an impressive 2.9 kilometre bridge, lies the Ile de Ré, a famed destination for tourists and wildlife alike. But despite the rich flora and fauna to be found on the island, that's not why I'm here. I'm standing outside the Museum d'Histoire Naturelle de La Rochelle, or the La Rochelle Natural History Museum, home to 10,000 or so artefacts that have been collected and displayed here since the 18th century. But there is one specimen in particular that interests me, one that has been housed in this venerable institution since 1931. Prior to that, she had been on display for many years in the Jardin des Plantes in Paris, the Botanical Gardens, first from 1827 in the gardens themselves as the first living breathing representative of her species ever seen on French soil. A gift to King Charles X from Muhammad Ali Pasha of Egypt. Then following her death 18 years later as a stuffed specimen in the foyer of the main building where she generated just as much awe and wonder. Waiting for me inside the museum is Niall Hatch. Francophile, naturalist and a man who has a fascination with the noble creature in question. Okay, Derek, follow me up this lovely stone staircase here. Very grand surroundings. We're going to head up towards the zoological gallery on the mm -hmm. first floor. Just watch your step there. Through this way, over a little bit. And okay, stop here now. Turn around, look over there. Wow. There she is in all her glory, Derek. That's Zarafa the giraffe. Can you just imagine the impact that such a beautiful and imposing creature would have had on her arrival in mm. France in 1827? She was literally the first ever giraffe on French soil. So she arrived in Paris after a really long 900-kilometer walk all the way from the port of Marseille. And on the way, thousands and thousands of people came out to greet her. It was like the Tour de France today. <laughs> but no yellow jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine what it would have been like for those people, seeing a giraffe for the first time in their lives. We're quite used to them these days, but this must have been mind-blowing for people, almost like seeing an alien coming down from another planet. Oh, I can imagine. And okay, there's no yellow jersey, but she does have a really distinctive pattern that sparked off a whole fashion frenzy in France. I'm not surprised people were so taken with her. Just look at her. Isn't she beautiful? This child of Egypt is quite a sight to behold. Even today, when most of us here in Europe are very familiar with how giraffes look, she remains an extremely impressive specimen. But just how did she end up here in La Rochelle, some 400 kilometres southwest of the French capital. Hello, Derek. Bonjour, Elise. S'il vous plaît, pouvez-vous continuer en anglais? Sure, with pleasure. <laughs> Elise Patol Edumba is the director and chief curator of the La Rochelle Natural History Museum. So uh, this animal, Zarafa and the giraffe, uh, came to Marseille by boat with uh, two cows to care for her. And uh, she went by foot to Paris in the Jardin des Plantes, the National Museum of Natural History. Then she died in uh, 1845. 
She has stayed in the store's room almost 40 years, more than that. And one time, the curator of La Rochelle, of the Museum of Natural History of La Rochelle, Etienne Lopé, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, wanted to get some specific specimen for the gallery, the, zoology, the gallery of zoology. And he went in Paris to see different kinds of specimens. And he saw this giraffe in the room and uh, he recognized this giraffe because she has a specific design on his coat, the pattern mm. uh, on the top of the leg, the right leg. Mm -hmm. And so it's why we can recognize Darafa. Uh, so he has to have this specimen and he came back with the specimen and the dromedary also by train. Uh, and Zarafa arrived in 1931 at the museum and uh, it uh, never moved until uh, today. It's in the same position? Yes. Where it was placed all those years ago, yeah. at the top of the staircase? Yes. And is it true that it was the first giraffe on French soil? Yes. It, it's true. Before there, there was a, a giraffe in Italy during the Renaissance period. It was a, a small giraffe and uh, it, it didn't survive. So it was the first time that a, a giraffe could live in Europe for a long time, seven, 17 years. Uh, the, this giraffe uh, was living during 70 years, so it's very important. And it was the first uh, giraffe in France. Did people know what it was? Did they know what they were looking at? Did they know it was a giraffe? Not really, not really. Not people like uh, uh, simple people, because uh, it was the first time that people can see uh, a, a huge animal like that. So it was, uh, uh, yes, it was the first time for the people. And it wasn't always called Zarafa. It didn't get its name Zarafa until the 1980s, I believe. Yes, yes, yes. The, the Zarafa was the, uh, the name Zarafa was given by a author, Mr. Hartin, American author, who uh, um, write uh, the story of this uh, Zarafa. And Zarafa is a term in Arab for giraffe. So it's why we keep this term and this name for our Zarafa. <laughs> but when Zarafa first arrived in France, the French media had many names for Zarafa. Yes, but the most famous was from the uh, Geoffroy de Saint-Hilaire, the naturalist Geoffroy de Saint-Hilaire, who uh, was working in the National Museum and uh, took care of Zarafa. Uh, he used to uh, call this uh, giraffe the beautiful animal of the king. Well, it was appropriate because yes. it was given as a diplomatic gift. Yes, yes, it was a diplomatic gift for the, uh, the King Charles X. Yes, it was very important and he liked very much uh, this kind of, uh, of exotic animals. He has uh, the menagerie and uh, he has a dromedary, he has uh, uh, different kinds of exotic animals mm. and uh, it's why we now we have in, in museums some exotic animals too. Now it was given as a gift by 
Muhammad Ali Pasha of Egypt. Were there good relations between France and Egypt at that time, or was Muhammad Ali Pasha trying to build good relations? Yes, he tried to build good relations. Uh, uh, he needs for his power to have a, a relationship with a European country. So he tried with UK and he tried with France. It's why one of his advisors suggested to give a gift and uh, exotic animal to the uh, French king because the uh, advisor knows that uh, the French kings uh, like uh, very much uh, this kind of gift. Mm. Essentially, Zarafa was the sort of gift that money couldn't buy in the early 19th century, an attempt by the ruler of Egypt to butter up his counterpart in France and to sweeten relations between two of the great Mediterranean powers of the day. Uh, Zarafa was given as a diplomatic gift from the Egyptian government right through to the French king. And you may wonder why the Egyptian government would want to give a diplomatic gift to the French king. Well, the reason, strangely enough, lies in an independence movement in Greece. Philip McCoot is a lawyer, writer and art historian based in Sydney, Australia. He is the author of several best-selling books and creator of a website called the Journal of Art in Society, in which he has written extensively about Zarafa's journey from Africa to Europe. Greece was a, a member of the Ottoman Empire and the Greek independence movement was trying to free itself of Ottoman control. And for that reason, that independence movement had tremendous support from a lot of the European countries, particularly the Christian ones, uh, who wanted to see the Ottoman influence reduced. Now, for that very reason, Egypt was against the Greek independence movement because it was part of the Ottoman Empire. So there was a real point of discord between Egypt and France at the time. Now, the situation arose because Egypt was actually entering the modern world or trying to at this stage. It was trying to break free of its old history. It regarded all of its ancient ruins as exactly that, ruins. And it was trying to establish a, a modern economy. It had a long way to go, but it had, had been starting to get finance from Europe, including particularly from France. And it was also getting significant amounts of tourism. This was partly because Napoleon had been in Egypt just 20 years previously, and his exploits in Egypt had led to a tremendous interest in the ancient monuments in Egypt, the pyramids, the mummies, the ancient temples and the tombs. So Egypt was keen to build up those things, but it had this problem that it disagreed really a lot with France about this Greek independence thing. So what they decided to do was to give an absolutely spectacular diplomatic gift to France, which would so bedazzle the French king that he would think well of them and he would continue sending finance and sending tourists down to Egypt. This sort of animal diplomacy is more common than you might think. The best example is probably the well-established practice of China gifting giant pandas to prominent foreign governments. Most famously, when Chairman Mao sent a pair of these rare bears, which are endemic to China, 
to U.S. President Richard Nixon in 1972. The Americans responded by dispatching a pair of musk oxen to the communist Asian nation, a symbolic representation of the growing diplomatic relationship between the two superpowers. But when it comes to Ali Pasha, it seems that giraffes were the go-to diplomatic gift. Dr. Richard Collins. Derek, this was a time of giraffe mania. (laughs) Ali Pasha sent not just one giraffe, but three, believe it or not. He sent one to England, to George IV, King of England. He sent one they now call Zarafa to, to France, and a third one to the Habsburgs in Vienna. The one that went to Vienna... uh, came to grief. It was an unfortunate case. It had to cross the Alps. Not only did it have to traipse all the way up to the Alps, it had to cross them and then on to Austria. There was great fuss in Austria when it arrived. Balls, musical compositions on its behalf, women's fashions on its behalf. And there is even, I believe, a harpsichord, a vertical harpsichord. The harpsichord is normally a horizontal instrument. But by turning it up and pointing it up, you could get a much more portable harpsichord, take up less room. But it was like a giraffe because it stuck up high in the air. So it became a giraffe harpsichord. This poor giraffe, there are speculation that it had been injured in the course of its travels. Nobody knows. Or when it was captured out in in Africa, in, in the Sudan. But it died after eight months. It didn't last very long. As for the one that went to England, it didn't fare that much better than the Austrian one. It didn't last very long. The really successful one was the one that went to France. But whether or not it worked for the benefit of Ali Pasha, that is another question altogether. It's one thing to have the idea of giving the gift of a large animal to a foreign country, but quite another to transport it over long distances. Nowadays, climate-controlled cargo ships and planes can be used. But in 1826, it was a very different story. A task much more easily said than done. Once they decided to send this diplomatic gift, they had to find a giraffe. Not as easy as it sounds. They sent Arab hunters down to Ethiopia, just near the border of Sudan at the time. And those hunters eventually found a female giraffe, which had two calves. They disposed of the female giraffe and they took the two calves. These cars were still quite small, even though giraffes grew quite large, 15, 16 feet possibly. Each of them had their legs tied together and they were put on the back of camels and transported down to Khartoum. After that, they were sent down the river, then up the Nile, about 2,000 miles, all the way up to Alexandria on the Mediterranean coast. And they were being transported at the time on barges, It must have been an extraordinary experience for the giraffe, as you can imagine. They eventually got to Alexandria. Then they thought, how do we get it from here over to France? Because they would have to cross the Mediterranean. And by this stage, the giraffe had got too big to just put on a barge. So they had to put it in a sailing ship and they would get the giraffe to stand in the hold of the ship. And then they cut a hole in the deck of the ship so that the giraffe's head and neck could just 
appear above it. There'd be space for it to have a look around. You can imagine the sensation that that sort of arrangement would have caused amongst any of the spectators. The trip took four weeks, which would give you a pretty good idea that it was a difficult trip and a fair amount of hardship was involved in that trip. They eventually arrived in Marseille, and at the time they did, Zarafa, the giraffe, became the first giraffe to be seen in Europe for 300 years. There was no radio, television or social media at the time to document just how this impressive feat was accomplished. But thankfully, there were newspaper journalists and artists and they were just as captivated by the process of getting Zarafa from the Sudanese savannah to Paris city centre as one would hope. Nile Hatch. Undoubtedly the most famous of all of the paintings that were made depicting Zarafa on her voyage uh, was the one by Jacques-Raymond Brecassa, which is currently on display in the Musée de Beaux-Arts de Beaune. And that shows her walking along a country road, it looks like to me, uh, accompanied by some of her, her handlers who are of African origin. And in front of her, we see a cow because, of course, Zarafa had to be fed. So everywhere she went on the journey, she was accompanied by three dairy cows that provided milk for her each day. And it's great to have actual documentary evidence of that. You know, you can read about that, but nothing brings it quite to life like seeing it in illustration in that way. The other thing that that artwork captured is the very distinctive way that giraffes walk moving both the legs on one side of the body at the same time and then on the other side. This is fairly unique among animals and you can quite clearly see this walking style within this art. So for a species that was completely unknown to the French public at the time, this must have been quite the sensation. It really did capture the imagination. Another very famous painting of Zarafa um, when she was ensconced in Paris was also from 1827. It was by Nicolas Huet on display in the Morgan Museum in New York. And it's the giraffe herself tethered to a tree, it looks like some sort of conifer, in the grounds of the gardens there in Paris, with her keeper, who stayed with her throughout her whole life, he accompanied her from Africa, reclining in a chair just at the base of the tree. And I think the main purpose of this wonderful painting is to show the scale of this giraffe, just how tall she is. She's reaching up to the branches of the tree and she absolutely dwarfs the man down below her. But with our modern knowledge of giraffes looking at this, you can see, well, actually, that is a very accurate representation representation of the sheer size and scale of the giraffe. It really is very impressive and anatomically very correct as well, which is nice to see. Uh, of course, not all artists were necessarily as talented or maybe some of them were even making pictures of the giraffe from verbal descriptions or from written descriptions without actually having seen it themselves. It's hard to know. Uh, but there are many more crude drawings that appeared in newspapers and in books at the time uh, of the giraffe on her journey, some more fanciful than others and some of them trying to capture her, her true scale. There's quite a famous, almost a caricature that was made of Zarafa that was made a sensation in the press at the time actually on her voyage towards Marseille across the Mediterranean Sea and in this the giraffe has actually been made outlandishly tall she looks like she's almost the mast of the ship her head is coming up above the, the sails her neck is ludicrously elongated uh, and she looks more like a skyscraper than a giraffe now of course that's not realistic but I suppose it does capture for the French public at the time just how impressive and imposing and unusual this animal was and in fact let me think 
thinking, how on earth do you transport a giraffe all the way from Africa to France? Obviously, back in the day when we had sailing ships, we had uh, long ocean voyages. There was no easy way to do this. Like you would transport animals today. We didn't have planes to do it or anything like that. It turns out what she did was actually even a bit more outlandish than even these these artists depicted. She actually remained in the hold of the ship uh, with her head sticking up through the deck with a special canvas tent around her to help shade her from the sun. So basically her head and the top part of her neck were poking up through a hole in the deck of the ship uh, while her rest of her body remained below deck and the sailors were going about their everyday business. So um, in some ways I suppose the truth is actually stranger than fiction in this case. But this wasn't the end of Zarafa's journey. A long march to Paris lay ahead. The giraffe here was on public view for so many weeks and months. By the time it finally would get to Paris, it had been on the go for two years. So the public had started following its story for a long time. And there was tremendous expectation as to would we ever get to see it, this amazing beast that no one's ever seen before, or they didn't think anybody had ever seen it before. You can imagine the effect on people in countryside France. It would have been the most amazing thing that they'd ever seen. It would be as if someone knocked on your front door and said, come outside, have a look, there's a dinosaur coming down the street. That's about the level of awe that people would have had at seeing a giraffe this size, by now probably more than 12 feet high, parading down the street. So the giraffe was kept in Marseille. It was taken out for regular walks to stimulate public interest in it. It created a sensation wherever it went. Large crowds followed it every day. And it spent the winter in Marseille because it couldn't really travel during the winter because it would be too cold and the trip would be too hard. They also couldn't sail it to Paris because Paris is land-bound, it's not on the coast, and also it would involve a very, very long trip by boat. So they decided they would walk the giraffe from Marseille in the south all the way up to Paris. The giraffe went at a very stately pace. It was going two miles an hour, and the whole walk took three months. On the way, they stopped at little townships and villages. Everywhere they went, they were the biggest thing that everyone had ever seen, and they attracted crowds from everywhere. The publicity that was given to the giraffe was helped along by the fact that newspapers were just emerging at this stage. They weren't really news newspapers. Most of them were just sensationalist rags, I suppose. Uh, and they were always on the lookout for scandal, spectacular murders, and anything that caused a sensation. So for those newspapers, the giraffe was just manna from heaven. And Zarafa wasn't alone on her long journey. When Zarafa was travelling across France... Her appeal was increased by the fact that she was not alone. Zarafa was really like a combination between a royal tour and a circus act. She led a procession, or followed a procession, really. The procession, first of all, had cows at the front as she was walking across France. Of course, they were using cow's milk as food for her. They'd previously used camel milk. So cows 
led the procession. There was the odd goat. There were two attendants who'd been following Zarafa and looking after her ever since she was first captured down in Ethiopia. There were representatives of the Paris Zoo that turned up at various stages, just making sure that Zarafa was still alive and kicking and was not going to drop dead on them. So all in all, it was somewhat of a, an amazing performance and it was something that people simply couldn't miss. Zarafa may have won the hearts and minds of the French people, but what about the king? And so far as being a diplomatic gift was concerned, it was supposed to curry favour with the king. But in fact, the king wasn't all that keen on the giraffe because the giraffe had attracted all the publicity. He'd been upstaged by a yellow-spotted beast and he wasn't terribly happy about it. Be that as it may... He was just about the only person in Paris who wasn't happy to see the giraffe, because everybody else was. Ethics and welfare are, as one would expect, much more of a concern to those catching giraffes today than they were in the 19th century. Just how can this be done safely and with a minimum of stress to these sensitive animals? And how do techniques used today differ from those employed over 200 years ago? Dr Julian Fennessy is director and co-founder of the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, the only NGO in the world that concentrates solely on the conservation and management of giraffe in the wild throughout Africa. I can't imagine what it would have been like to catch a giraffe a couple of hundred years ago. You know, going out there these days and catching them is, uh, it's tough work. It's uh, one of the most stressful things that we do. Um, and we don't do it just for fun. There's no doubt, you know, when we go out to catch giraffe, we're trying to really help set up new populations of giraffe. Unfortunately, they've gone missing in a few areas and our job is really to bring them back into the habitat that they used to live in. And by doing so, of course, help save them. But today we use a high opioid, a drug, which... If you put it in perspective, it's about 6,000 times more powerful than morphine. Wow. If we get a drop on our finger and we've got a cut, we'll be dead within a minute. But these giraffe, they're super strong. They take more drugs than elephant, than most other animals to help bring them down. And, you know, the drug just helps slow them down. And then what we do really is we run around with a rope and we try to literally, it's like a cowboy effort. Well, it looks like that, but it's really to bring down the giraffe as safely as possible best environment possible and then when we have it down on the ground we give it a reversal drug and we're working on it immediately whether it's to put it on a GPS satellite tag or to then be able to put it into a truck to translocate it. That's what we do today but 200 years ago wow I mean these guys must have had no drugs they must have probably been on horseback I think would be a good guess so then they would be pelting along the side on a horse and then literally either someone crazy enough to jump on it somehow or with a rope to be able to stop it but how many people must have been hurt how many horses would have passed in the process not to mention the stress on the animal I mean really what we're trying to do is minimize as much stress as possible on the animal by using drugs ropes Mm. whatever it may be you know these guys obviously you know went about it and how that animal survived is an amazing tale you know not just obviously the capture itself but then to be able to be taken all the way to france it really is remarkable and the story itself speaks volumes about i think how sturdy giraffe are they one of the most robust animals in the world when i say the word giraffe 
no doubt a very definite image pops into your head. The almost absurdly long neck and legs, perfectly adapted to browsing foliage that is out of reach of other African herbivores. The twin fur-covered horn-like projections atop the skull, called ossicones, looking almost like a pair of antennae. And the intricately spotted coat, with no two sharing the same pattern. Truly, no other animal even remotely resembles a giraffe. The pattern of a giraffe is really unique. When you see it, you know, just by itself, you think, this can't help it, you know, be saved in the wild, it's crazy. But actually it blends in really well with its environment and it actually changes colour depending on where you see giraffe. In Namibia, in the desert, it gets very pale, but in other areas of East Africa, it's actually really dark coating. Interestingly, every coat is different, just like your fingerprint, so you can identify every single one and be able to monitor it throughout its life. So that's very interesting and I, I think the patterning is something that is unique to the subspecies. You can see variability within a population but often in general you can tell that's that type of giraffe because it lives in that area and that's the pattern that it has. Historically, giraffes ranged across much of sub-Saharan Africa, though sadly today their number and ranges are much reduced and they are now absent from vast swathes of the continent. For years we've termed decline of giraffe as a silent extinction. It's sort of a bit of a pun really on that uh, most people have thought that giraffe were silent, they didn't make noise. Unfortunately they've just sort of gone, you know, in many countries the numbers have plummeted and no one really noticed they haven't been as popular as elephant or lion and other creatures, uh, yet probably one of the most iconic animals in the world. Why is that? Why aren't they popular do you think? I think a lot of people think them as like big deer or something like that you know they don't have the social structure like an elephant or lion or gorilla so people don't have that affinity with them maybe as much but when you see a giraffe in the wild it's one of the most amazing experiences ever we've assumed for years that you know oh, they maybe make a little bit of noise but if you're out in the wild and you know they're under threat you can hear them snort and snuff and gruff a lot like horses in a translocation many years ago there was a very stressful situation and luckily the giraffe survived that was most important but it literally roared like a lion that was one of the most amazing noises i've ever heard no matter where one encounters them all giraffes are immediately identifiable as such but it has long been recognised that there are significant regional differences between populations. The coloration and pattern of the spots in particular varies quite widely between geographically disparate populations. In recent years, biologists and conservationists have been paying increasing attention to these regional variations. For example, Zarafa was a Nubian giraffe. So the Nubian giraffe is actually a unique individual, but it's part of what we call the northern giraffe. We have now identified that there's four species of giraffe in the wild. Before, everyone thought there was just one and they could interbreed, but they don't. Naturally in the wild, they are unique. They spend time by themselves wherever they are in the continent. So the Nubian numbers probably about 3,000 individuals in the wild. That makes it critically endangered with the numbers dropping by, I would say, about 95% just in the last 35 years alone. Pretty crazy numbers and uh, obviously that's why we need focused conservation support on not just Nubian but other types of species of giraffe in the wild. And what are the threats? 
There's a lot of threats for giraffe and it's just not a cookie cutter approach. So the same threats that might be facing the Nubian giraffe, which include oil production in Murchison Falls National Park in Uganda. It could be, of course, poaching um, for local subsistence survival in many areas. But the big one really is habitat loss, habitat fragmentation. It's people. There's too many of us, we're breeding too much, and uh, as a result, we need more land for agriculture. So that's how we, we really need to tackle that one head on. It's not easy, but by translocating giraffe to new areas um, or to areas that giraffe used to live, we're trying to get around it, not have the, all the eggs in one basket, mm. so to speak. But you need to get the locals on board. It's really important. Conservation of giraffe in Africa needs to be saved by Africans for Africa. That's the only way we're going to protect them long term. We need to protect the habitat. We need to provide jobs, alternative livelihoods. So if we can uh, really address those issues, giraffe and many other species will be better off. While we can still easily marvel at these stupendously tall yet supremely graceful creatures, it's hard for us here in the 21st century fully to understand and appreciate the impact that these almost supernatural-seeming mammals had on early 19th century European society. With their long necks and legs, beautifully patterned coats and lustrous eyelashes, Zarafa and her kind quickly became something of a sensation. And given that Paris, the home of haute couture, was the epicentre of this newfound fascination with giraffes, it was little wonder that its trend-setting fashionistas were amongst the first to take notice. Their appetite for the form and coloration of these exotic mammals sparked a genuine fashion craze, which soon came to be known as la mode à la giraffe. The influence of giraffe was felt in many, many ways. It seemed to permeate all stratas of Paris society. It became the subject of songs and poems, cartoons, musical sketches. <laughs> Even that year's seasonal flu was named after the giraffe. Giraffe colours, basically yellow with spots, were featured in jewellery and wallpaper crockery, confectionery, gingerbread men, ice creams, perfumes, and particularly in fashions. Outlandish fashion suddenly became so popular, amongst the upper classes at least, who could afford them. Women would wear giraffe-coloured dresses. They would pile their head high so that it resembled a giraffe. In some cases, it's said that they piled their hair so high they had to sit in the bottom of their carriage in order to fit. French men, too, started affecting very tall hats to imitate the giraffe's neck. There was hardly an item which didn't have an image of giraffe on it. There was no day that went by without news of giraffe. There was no day that went by without people flocking to see her. In modern terms, Zarafa had effectively gone viral because she permeated all parts of society. So it seems that giraffes were amongst the first animals to go viral, all thanks to the fashion bloggers of the time. Our fascination with them has never waned. Even today, they still have that air of the exotic about them there remains something extremely captivating about their physical appearance. 
Niall Hatch spoke earlier about how 19th century French artists were taken with the unusual way in which Zarafa walked. Her gait, unlike that of any other animal they had seen. In addition to her very prominent neck, they were also struck by her long tongue and enchanted by her lush eyelashes. Oh, you can't miss the neck. It's got the biggest neck of any animal. It's got these beautiful eyes and even more fantastic eyelashes. And every woman that would visit the park here and see the eyelashes just dreams about having those. The ears, you can see the hear the animals, once the hero's talking, the ears switch around from, say, the back of the head to the front of the head to listen and get the direction of where the, the actual sound is coming from. And the c- different colours. Each giraffe has a different pattern on its coat and the colour of that pattern can vary greatly as well. So they're very individualistic animals. In order to get up close and personal with the giraffe and to experience its charms at first hand for myself, I travelled to Photo Wildlife Park in County Cork to meet director Sean McKeown. Since 1983, the giraffes have been on public display here and we've done a number of surveys over the years and the giraffe is the most popular animal. More popular than the lions now that we have or the tigers or even the cheetah. They're at least four or five points ahead of the rest. And that's because they're astonishing animals. They're four and a half metres tall They have a huge heart to pump the blood up to their head, to their brain, to keep functioning. And they have this very elongated neck, which has the same number of vertebrae as we have. These are fantastic adaptions to living in the wild and in nature. And of course, in the wild, they feed on leaves mainly, and they'll take the bark off trees as well. But it's mainly the leaves that they would eat, and particularly of acacia trees, and acacia trees have really long thorns. Mm. And to get around that, they have this beautiful blue long tongue. And that just peels off the leaves, off the branches of the trees, and allows them not get injured in any way. So instead of having to munch through a, a lump of thorns, they can, they can negotiate around and, and, and pull specific leaves off the branches. Like a hand. Like a hand. It's almost a prehensile tongue. It's just another fantastic adaption to life in the wild. The other thing is the long legs. With the Rothschild giraffes, one of the ways of recognising them is the legs have these, what they call, white socks on them. So they have no pattern on the rest of the body because it extends down onto that lower part of the leg. So they, it looks as like they have little white socks on them. Mm. And then the other one is the bumps on their head. They're bony structures, not horns, but they're quite prominent in Rothschild giraffes. And that also helps with keeping branches away from the eyes and the head. And um, Is that its sole purpose? Uh, it, is, it also comes in handy with males when they're fighting. They thump each other with their heads. They bang their necks yeah. against each other, don't yeah, they? Yeah, and their head, they, they throw the head right round and thump the other one on, 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 the, on the back. And I imagine that would hurt because that's swinging around with some power. Yes, yeah, yeah. It can be quite ferocious when you see two m- big males fighting in the wild, throwing punches with her head. Now, in terms of predation, what's their biggest threat? Lions, uh, particularly at when they're down drinking at water poles, to drink out of a pond, they have to put their front legs, stretch them out in front of them, bend down, keep, you know, and their head has to go down into the water 
to drink. And if a lion jumps on them at that stage, or maybe even two lions, they can knock the animal over. And once they're over and the, the, the giraffe is down and they have a hold of its neck, then it's very difficult for that giraffe to get up. And uh, that's how they kill them. But if they manage to stand on their feet? Then the giraffe could uh, kick a, a lion probably 20 metres away. Mm. And they can move pretty fast when they want yeah. to. Yeah, they can run, but they can kick. They're unusual, and, 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 and if you train as a, a giraffe keeper, I mean, you don't see a cow kicking out with its front leg. But these giraffes can kick out, straight out, front and, and also with their back legs. So they're, they're sort of protected front and back by their feet. And, of course, they're protected a little bit by their head because they can swing that, and if a lion gets a thump of a giraffe's head, that, you know, that could knock it out. But how does a creature so tall actually live? How does it pump the blood all around its body? I mean, that neck, as you mentioned, is very long. Those legs are very long. The head is all the way up there on top of its neck. How does it get the blood up there and manage to stay alive? It has a massive heart. Heart size to its body is probably one of the biggest hearts going. Its heart ratio would be bigger than that of an elephant even. And that's because it has to put blood up to a height of four metres. So you're talking about it's probably, it has to, to raise the blood from the heart about three metres above the heart up to the head. That's a long way. And what about its brain? Well, if you ask the keepers here, they're probably not the smartest animals. They're very suspicious of anything on the ground. And often when we're bringing them in and out of the, the giraffe walkway in the evenings, they'll stop and they'll stare and they'll look and they'll keep staring at that thing could be a, a bucket that was not normally there and to them they're suspicious of anything on the ground so they're neophobic yeah they, they they see that as po- a possible lion lurking on the ground and they want to check it out and make sure if you're um, I suppose a zebra or a smaller gazelle and you have a big giraffe beside you you know that you've got a tower they can see around and make mm. sure that there's no danger in front of you so they're, they're almost like little lighthouses, making sure that everything is... Yeah. But funny you should mention the zebras being beside them out in the Great Plains, because I'm told that if you go to the savannah and you see a giraffe, that your brain is overwhelmed, and you don't notice the other creatures, just the giraffes. What do you uh, think about that? Yeah, I think when you see something as big, as tall, and as unusually shaped, I mean, it, it doesn't look as if it could function. But it does, and, 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 and can run its speeds up to 50 miles an hour plus, so it's, it's a fantastic design for eating out of the treetops. Come on! A treat for anyone visiting Photo Wildlife Park is to stand on the viewing platform, which brings you face-to-face with the giraffes at feeding time. So we're going up here to see Liam, and he's a ranger on the proof stock section, and he's calling the giraffes up here uh, with some pellets and also uh, a big branch for them to Why is he on. whistling? Oh, obviously <laughs> it's the sound that they get to recognise that this is somebody up here. Lunchtime. It's lunchtime, yeah. So, there's one or two a little bit interested. Come on! And all are giraffes of Irish names, the, the ones that are born here. The ones that are born somewhere else tend to keep their names with them. They're all in a stud book, and if you're managing a stud book, you hate some somebody else in another zoo changing the name because you wind up with maybe when animals moves around three or four different places, there's three or four different names, and someone starts talking about it, and you don't know which particular animal they're mm. talking about. 
uh, and they won't know the stud bug number, they'll know their own name. So that's why it's, it's a very good idea to just to keep the name that the animal was given. Come on! Good girls, come on! Uh, I quite like Aoife. Aoife's got a um, good temperament. She's the matriarch of the group as well, so um, she's always the first one, first one out and the first one in. Claude is very nice as well. And again, she's um, Aoife's daughter, so they have quite a similar temperament. Um, she's quite a nice animal to work with, and we've also done a lot of hoof care with her, so um, we've done a lot of training over the years to get her used to people, let us um, manipulate their feet so we can um, trim their hooves the same way as you would a horse or a cow, just to make sure um, everything's in good shape and they're not going to have any problems, because obviously being such big animals, if they have any foot problems, it can make the rest of their life quite difficult, so we try and keep on top of that and make sure they're all in good form. What are you feeding them, Liam? Uh, so I have a willow browse here, so we have multiple plantations throughout the park and in Cove, and every day, um, twice a day, we have um, lads that go out and cut the browse first, so it's nice and fresh for the giraffes. Um, and not just the giraffes, we give it to the rhinos, the bison, uh, the tapir, any browse-eating animals, but obviously because giraffes, their main feed is browse, we try and give them as much as possible. Um, and then we also supplement their feed with um, an alpha a lucerne and then also um, vegetable pellets too just to make sure they're getting all their vitamins and minerals because um, in the wild they'll browse on multiple different species so I think this one below wants the pellets yeah, I think. so that's Claudia so she's wanting the pellets so we'll get a good look at her tongue as well oh that's a big tongue it all is right, isn't it? absolutely and they use that then to strip all the bark off as well but pellets are favorite as well so we'll give that to her good girl are they quiet animals my impression is shown that they are very quiet yeah, but if they're startled, you know, they just run over you. <laughs> so, you know, you, you have to be careful when you're in with them. The staff really get to know the, the individuals. Some some are quieter than the others. Aria was quite a difficult one. She came from Dublin, so. <laughs> She's not a Corkonian, no? No, no. Yeah. Taking a while to settle down. Those eyelashes really are gorgeous now. I can see yeah. them all right. And, woo, look at that. I can see why people would like them. They're beautiful creatures, aren't they? Do you like them, Liam? I mean, uh, yeah, no, is it just the giraffes you work with or you work uh, with other animals? I've been lucky enough to work with most of the animals in the park now. Um, I've been here for about eight years, so I've kind of done my round on everything, but they're certainly one of the prettier animals, um, and especially getting to work so close with them as well, you get a great appreciation, not only for how pretty they are, but also how tall they are. I mean, I'm by no means a tall person, and I can nearly walk between their legs if they're that tall, so <laughs> um, especially when you go next to the boys who are you know, close to 20 foot, you get a great appreciation for the size and for the strength, but um, as Sean said, they are quite nervous animals so we have to be on our toes with them and um, they get skittish even a, a gust of wind might upset them and you'd see them running across the paddock so you always have to be aware that they can um, turn at a given time so you do see them running fast oh absolutely i mean we're, we oh, yeah. get to drive out with them in the uh, jeep with the trailer so they'll often chase the trailer so you get a good idea about how fast they can actually move um, even though they do look slow with their gait yeah, i was they, going to say that they've got the most yeah. peculiar gait haven't yeah. they when I mean, the head bobs and it bobs with the the movement of the body and I think it's it, it you know as the front legs hit they almost they, they go down up down and it's it sort of takes the weight off the you know each time that foot hits the ground it just takes a little bit of pressure off it it's like slow motion yeah and have they got individual personalities would you say Liam uh, they absolutely do. so this is Blahin she's one of the older girls and she has a nasty habit of trying to hit you with her head if you don't put up food fast enough for her so down by the house if you're putting up brows for her um, she will actively try and hunt you down um, so you need to be aware that some of them will have a, have a cut at you but for the most part they're pretty good some of them are a little bit more comfortable being touched as well so a lot of them don't 
uh, like being touched on the body with one of the girls she afraid is she just sit there and she let you touch her all day whereas some of them not, not a chance but uh, for the most part they're pretty good Having seen a giraffe at such close quarters, I can certainly understand how Muhammad Ali Pasha would have had high hopes that King Charles X would have been impressed with his gift. But did it actually work? Did Zarafa pave the way for a new cooperation between Egypt and France? Philip McCoot. Zarafa's story raises questions about whether diplomatic gifts are actually worthwhile. I think that probably depends on the type of gift and the circumstances in which it's given. Certainly in Zarafa's case, the gift was not successful at all. The king wasn't happy about the giraffe. And in fact, very shortly after it arrived in Paris, King Charles X and various other European powers were involved in a mini invasion in Greece in support of the Greek independence movement and fought a battle which was quite decisive in that war. So in this particular case, Sarafa had the opposite effect of what was intended by Egypt. I must admit that I'm not entirely comfortable with wild animals being used as diplomatic tools. One might even say bribes in this way. Sarafa may have become an international celebrity, may have sparked a fashion craze, may have become the prototype for Europeans' very idea of what a giraffe is. But I can't help feeling that she would have had a much happier life had she been allowed to continue roaming the savannas of Sudan. That said, Philip McCoot insists that Zarafa's ordeal was not in vain. There are a number of aspects when we think about Zarafa as to what lasting effect did she have. The first thing is that once she got to Paris, she lived quite a long time. She lived for 18 years after she arrived in Paris. So she became part of the national identity. She was the giraffe that belonged to the nation. And one aspect of that was that for many people, they had only really experienced animals as working beasts as property. They had never really considered animals, particularly wild animals, as creatures with their own personality, with their own emotions. Zarafa was a very personable giraffe. She had a beautiful face with the beautiful long eyelashes. She was very friendly, very frisky and lively, reacted well to crowds, was very gentle with everybody, and she also had displayed extraordinary resilience and strength to endure this incredible journey that she'd undertaken. So I have a strong feeling that people's attitudes towards animals just had a minor shift to them. And it's interesting that later on in that century, the first steps were made towards having animal welfare, legislation, protection against cruelty to animals, which in previous centuries just would have been regarded as a ludicrous concept. So I think Zarafa played her own role, small though it may have been, in just 
altering perceptions of how people saw animals. Today, there are no longer giraffes to be found in the region of Africa from which Zarafa was abducted. We humans have taken a very heavy toll on these majestic animals indeed. Hunting, habitat destruction and urbanisation have left precious few places where they can still roam. The scientific name given to the giraffe by Linnaeus, the father of taxonomy, was Giraffa camelepardalis, meaning fast-walking leopard camel. That's a pretty good way to describe a giraffe to someone unfamiliar with it. But while these leopard camels once covered most of their continent, today they cling on in widely scattered pockets, as well as in zoos and wildlife parks, and in museums. I was surprised by the impact that seeing Zarafa, or at least what is left of her, in the museum in La Rochelle, had on me. Long after her death, she still has lessons to teach us. She was once the most famous animal in the world, beloved and celebrated by millions. Yet there she was, still undeniably magnificent. But not how a giraffe really should be seen. How terrible it would be if one day the only place to see a giraffe is in a museum. Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney. And the team will be back with more later this week. Next Saturday here on RT Radio 1, the Mooney Goes Wild team come together again to bring you a special programme about waders. We do have one remarkable little wader there called a red-necked phalarope. Um, it was extinct as a breeder in Ireland for a long, long time, many decades, and it's returned now in the last few years, small breeding population up in County Mayo on the Mullet Peninsula in, in Broadway Ireland's reserves there. And uh, that's a tiny little wader, and what it does is it habitually swims, it has lobed feet like a coos, so like they can actually paddle very well in the water, and they spin in a tight circle to create a vortex that is thought to actually bring food up, small little prey mm-hmm. items from the bottom of the, the ponds up to the top, and then they use the to pick it them up. It is incredible. It seems they're very prone to any kind of pollution because they use capillary action to get the food up into their beaks. They have narrow needle-like beaks and they use the rely on the surface tension to bring the food up into their mouths. And if there's any kind of pollution, detergent running in the water, it breaks the surface tension and stops them taking up the food. One of my favourite things about the follow-up, you know, they have this, this um, reverse sexual dimorphism, as we call it, where the, where the females are, are the boss and they will mate with the males, they lay the eggs and then they disappear off. You often fly further north, have another brood, leaving the male behind with the chicks. They're beautiful Poor old males are left looking after oh, the, the chicks. Yeah. Ah, proper order, I see. <laughs> <laughs> they spin around in circles to use this capillary action. So I remember looking it up. What, what, what does phalarope actually mean? It must have referenced this. No, it means it has a white spot. That's what <laughs> <means>. <laughs> Waders, a Mooney Goes Wild special at 8am next Saturday here on RTE Radio 1. Email mooney at rte.ie.